Welcome to the Lorax, the show where we take beloved fictional settings and inspect them a little too closely in all their nooks and crannies through philosophical, historical, political lenses and the like. My name's Khalil, King Kong. And I'm Alex. And this episode, we're going to be talking about, you know, that group of kind of muscly, radical, teenage, anthropomorphic animals from the 90s? Yeah, with attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, obviously, we're talking about street sharks. Yeah. Well, what did you think we were going to do? <laughs> street sharks um, was a show. <laughs> I think we, that, we can definitely say street sharks was a show. Yeah. Um, it, I don't know about you, but in rewatching this show as research, I realised how. Quite how little there is to say about Street Sharks, and quite how little Street Sharks has to say full stop. I, th- I think when we picked uh, to talk about Street Sharks, both of us um, were riding very high on nostalgia yes. at that time. Probably fueled a lot by the, you know, the toys. It being a show, like many shows in the 90s, designed to sell toys and action figures. And boy, did it sell toys. Those toys were pretty good, though. Pretty good toys. They were pretty good. I, I had it's one. just say the toys might be better than the show. <laughs> Might. (laughs) (laughs) So, for those who might not be aware, um, Street Sharks is, is, was a show about four brothers. Um, They were the Bolton brothers, who were the sons of Dr. Robert Bolton. So, there's John Bolton, Clint Bolton, Robert Bobby Bolton, and Coop Bolton. Um... All of whom make me think of Michael Bolton. (laughs) Also just the most American-sounding names. Right? And this is a theme uh, that will go through the Street Sharks. It's very all-American. But Dr. Robert Bolton is a geneticist, which in the 90s is a new, exciting sci-fi profession. And he is trying to use the power of genetics to benefit humankind. Um, His evil... Research partner, Dr. Luther Paradigm, wants to remove the weaknesses inherent in humanity by splicing people with marine creatures' DNA. So, um, early on in the show, he creates two hench people um, using the DNA of Genghis Khan and a lobster, and um, a pirate captain and a swordfish. Or yeah. Marlin. It's not explained how he gets the DNA of Genghis Khan or uh, a pirate think, captain. Yeah, and also, if you're trying to make people who are going to obey you... <laughs> Two f- famous rebels. A f- oh, a famed like imperial leader and conqueror yeah. and a an individualist kind of rebel criminal might not be my go-to. But anyway, no. I'm not an evil uh, you know, geneticist. I'm a, an evil immunologist. I mean, while we're on it, also, like, why lobster? Well, you know, they're tough. They've got claws. I guess. They can live a long time. Um, they, yeah, lobsters have lots of cool adaptations. I suppose, yeah. I mean, I haven't really thought about it, but if I if I ran into a man-sized lobster, it probably would be right? awful. Yeah. But Dr. Bolton uncovers Dr. Paradigm's uh, gene-slamming experiments, which is a pretty cool it's term. It's a very cool term. And objects to them on an ethical basis. Um, he hadn't... Hadn't taken it to the ethics review panel. No. I do like the way that they depict the gene slamming being Dr. Paradigm at his keyboard, uh, drag and dropping strands of DNA, <laughs> just uh, just opening up human DNA and then just drag and dropping lobster and, and, and swordfish things and then closing it up again. With And I, I love that that very 90s mouse, which is just a one-clicker mouse mm-hmm. as well. On a yeah, table. yeah. And so Dr. Bolton tries to stop Dr. Paradigm and is transformed into... A mutant monster, which is actually not shown on screen um, for most of the the show's run. Dr. Bolton then largely departs the show. But his sons... His sons are lured by Dr. Paradigm um, to an abandoned nuclear plant, of course. (laughs) Because Dr. Paradigm is in need of more test subjects. And also, these are, you know, people who might start asking questions about the disappearance of their father. So he gene slams the sons and turns them into shark people. Um, again, because sharks have lots of really cool 
adaptations to uh, to their lifestyle, which I guess you could think would improve humanity. Like sharks are, are quite resistant to a lot of diseases and yeah. cancers and things. Um, but John Bolton, the smartest, the leader, and the oldest of the four brothers. Um, Enjoys creating inventions. He's a bit of a tinkerer. Rides a motorbike. Um, he is spliced or gene slammed uh, with the genes of a great white shark. Um, because the leader has to be great and white, I guess. <laughs> oh, oh, wow, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Clint Bolton is the the lazy, uh, kind of stoner-coded brother. Mm. Who gets gene slammed with a hammerhead shark. Um, who unlike an actual hammerhead shark, can use its head as a battering ram. Robert Bobby Bolton um, is, a, is the, the Vinny of the group. Oh, nope, we haven't mentioned Vinny yet. No. Robert Bobby Bolton is the kind of smooth ladies' man, in inverted commas, of the yeah. group. Uh, he rollerblades everywhere and wears sleeveless t-shirts. Such a 90s thing. <laughs> to rollerblade everywhere. Right, even more 90s. Plays street hockey. Yeah. Um, and then Coop Bolton is the, the kind of, uh, the big muscly uh, football player of the group, uh, who skateboards around and is spliced with a whale shark. Why you would pick a type of shark that has no teeth is interesting. So mm. he ends up with teeth. But anyway, these brothers end up being four hyper muscled. And when I say hyper muscled, do yourself a favor and Google these boys because, <laughs> hyper-muscled, uh, anthropomorphic shark people. And a bare bones of plot ensues. Mm. They're trying to find out what happened to their father. Dr. Paradigm is trying to do more weird experiments <laughs> more and trying crime. to cover up his um, previous stuff. He's often trying to frame the street sharks for crimes and stuff. Mm. That is about as far as really anything that that show has to... Has yeah. to be, and think, then we can look at maybe what it, the limited stuff it has to say. Yeah, I, I think that the creators never really went much further past what if sharks were people, and then after that moment, they were like, "How many puns can we cram into one show?" <laughs> uh, based around sharks, fish, and everything else. Well, let's start off with the with the the post transition names of these four four kids. So, um, John Bolton becomes Ripster. Uh, Clint Bolton becomes Jab. Bobby Bolton becomes Streaks. And <laughs> Coop Bolton becomes Big Slamu. <laughs> Big Slamu. Um, despite not being an orca. Yeah. Um, but his special move is punching the ground so people fall over. Did you say, what, what's Clint's name again on that? Uh, Clint is Jab because jab. he likes boxing. Right, and he's not the hammerhead, is he? Yes. And jab, you don't really jab with a hammer. No. <laughs> no. Um, I, I didn't say that any of this made sense. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just the. But you know, if you if you look too deep, as Alex and I are want do. to do, yeah. that's what you're here for. Actually, there there are some things that the show I think tries to say. Um, I mean, there's a lot of biting. Um, they yeah. solve most of their problems by biting stuff. Yes, and not a lot of things are able to withstand them. In the first episode, they eat a hot dog cart immediately. Well, and later they eat, like, crowbars and concrete pillars, and they can swim through, you know, concrete and tarmac. Yeah. Um, the theme song is, they fight, they bite, they stand for everything right, street sharks. <laughs> um... <laughs> So again, you know, this actually I think relates to the all-Americanness of the Bolton boys. Mm. Um, you know, the they have the you know, the four great American pastimes: football, hockey, riding motorbikes, and violence. Yeah, um, they love burgers. Yes, um, they yeah they do violence to solve problems, um, but they never they they'll bite everything except their enemies. Yeah, they do a lot of like throwing their enemies and punching their enemies and trapping their enemies under debris, mm. but they don't bite anyone. Yeah, it's it's interesting because they are like 
about forty percent mouth. <laughs> yeah, and they like they're not averse to biting stuff. Just not people. There's nothing with a pulse. You gotta have you gotta have a rule. Yeah, right. <laughs> the Batman of sharks, um, and the heroes are actually never. They're never really in peril or danger for more than a couple of seconds. Um, no real tension is ever built. It's very much um, bad guys turn up, good guys immediately solve that problem by biting it or punching it or jumping over it with a motorbike uh, or punching the ground so people fall over. Um, that said, you know, there is a, a change in how the boys relate with the world when they get transformed into sharks. Mm-hmm. Because they go from being very much insiders in American culture. They are four muscly, young, white guys. Yeah, I, and I think, uh, from what I remember from the, the opening uh, act of the of the first episode, like, they either live in their own houses, or at least ha- like are at college, or being they're successful yeah, as well. Yeah, because the, they are in four different places, yeah. waking up. And they've all got cell phones. Yeah, in the 90s. In the 90s. Which Ooh. shows how, how well off the Bolton family is. Yeah, geneticist pay has really uh, really gone down over the years. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or Dr. Bolton had a side hustle. <laughs> yeah. Been breaking bad on the side. Um, but once they are transformed into sharks, they are then relentlessly pursued by the cops and by the military even, as well as by their nemesis, Dr. Paradigm. Yeah. And... You know, they've suddenly been transformed from these insiders into outsiders who look weird and are considered threats. Yeah. Even though they try their best to, to help people and to clear their names and to to be good citizens. Mm. And we'll get onto the idea of citizens later. Even the city they're in. And you know, you were talking about puns. Yep. Fission City. Fission City. Which is a beautiful multi layered gift of a pun. It's great. Obviously fishing. Yes. Nuclear fission, yep, um, and cellular fission, which is you know dividing of cells. Um, so that kind of, I guess, hu- also fish in city. <gasps> <laughs> I can't believe I missed a layer of that pun. Well, there you go. Um, so, but that's that's about as much as Street Sharks has to say, really. Um, although you did show me a YouTube clip that blew my mind I think. yeah yeah uh, a lot of people who who well maybe not a lot of people but i'm sure there'll be some people listening to this who will remember street sharks or at least remember the fact that there's an, an absolutely insane uh video of vin diesel very young vin diesel vin diesel with hair vin diesel with hair that's how young he is um playing with street sharks and advertising them by having them bite like troll dolls and like and saying the voices, troll dolls yeah. and... like doing voices, going like, ah. <laughs> uh, you should look it up. It's wild. It's really nineties as well. It's so nineties. I don't even know if Vin Diesel was very famous then either. I don't think so because that was before Riddick. Riddick was his big break, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think there's there is like a little bit in Street Sharks that I think the first episode tries like starts off with an environmentalist kind of me- message, like the yeah. It's kind of a. It's I, I think it's it's. It's more of a kind of we shouldn't mess with nature mm. rather than a kind of pollution. Although yeah. Fish and City is explicitly very polluted. Yeah, they, they start off with Fish and City being like yeah. really, really polluted. Um, there's even like they, they they have that the eye in the sky guy who's like they never show. Mm-hmm. He's like a guy in a helicopter, the traffic news guy. Yeah. And he talks, he actually throws out some like lots of environmental terms at the start about how the pollution levels and the ozone levels and things like that. And then like it just still goes away. Uh, at the start of the episode, the whole city's covered in smog. Yeah. Um, and and then, it becomes a non-issue after that. Yeah. And even, even when we were talking, like, the, they, they meet an, an abandoned nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Which is like, you don't, not, don't get many of those, really, in America. Yeah, like, ha- the, the lifespan of a nuclear power plant is long. <laughs> which has its own, I mean, you know, nu- the idea of nuclear power being a clean energy in its own way. Yeah. And then it being abandoned. Yeah, like, <laughs> very American. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and on the subject of uh, the kind of terminology being thrown around, uh, listener, I have a background in science, um, and you know, as, as far as I did, even a PhD in immunology, and that scientific education, uh, for, like for a while, ruined a lot of science fiction for me. But then, you know, 
I wrestled with those demons and actually came to him just embrace it as fiction. But <laughs> we started this podcast. This 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 bloody show Street Sharks is the most egregious it, it, it's a very particular um misuse of scientific kind of language. They will get loads of very legit scientific terminology that has that, that has meaning mm. and then chop it all up and mix it all up into a salad that loses all meaning. Mm. Um they don't even bother to make up new words. They just they I wish I'd written down some of the combinations of words they use, but it was just too painful. <laughs> but enough about Street Sharks. Because um, that's all there is about Street That's all there is to it. But there's got to be another example of radical teenage anthropomorphic animals who are, you know, cartoons in the 90s to sell toys. Yeah, I mean, there's there's really only one. Right, the big one. Yeah, one name that comes to mind. Biker Mice from Mars. Exactly. <laughs> so, the far superior Biker Mice from Mars enters the chat. <laughs> this episode is an ode to Biker Mice from Mars. <laughs> really doing Street Sharks Day. But yes. Fuck those sharks. So, Mars. And the Biker Mice from, the, from it. <laughs> Mars, in the universe of Biker Mice from Mars, was populated by... A group of uh, anthropomorphic mice um, with a jacked bit, mice, all incredibly jacked, <laughs> um, motorbike riding, technologically advanced mice. Um, but then Mars was invaded um, by a an extractive colonial um, spacefaring civilization of fish-headed aliens known as the Plutarchians, and they wanted to essentially extract all of Mars's resources for Plutarch. Um, and there was a war, and the Plutarchians won, but three of the rebels managed to escape to Earth. Um, and these are Throttle, Modo, and Vinny. And when we say jacked, like, you got to check these guys. It's, it's even a point in universe. Yeah. They often refer, talk about how jacked <laughs> they are to each other. It's very, it's very like, uh, like, uh, just like male support group, kind of like gym, <laughs> gym going guys, I'm like, hey, nice gains, bro, kind of stuff. And they do call each other bro a lot. Yeah. So let's meet the bros. Throttle, the leader. Brown fur. Blue jeans. Black leather sleeveless biker vest. Open to show abs. Obviously. Finished with green lensed bionic sunglasses, a red neckerchief, and one fingerless glove. He rides a black Harley. Has a husky voice. Yeah, he talks like this. Yeah. Modo, dark grey fur. Strong but sensitive, the tallest of the group. Blue jeans, blue, red, purple kind of chest piece. Mm. Abs on show. Obviously. Uh, with a, finished with an eye patch and a metal arm with a gun in it. Yeah. Uh, rides what I think is the best bike, a purple chopper. Yeah. Which is his pride and joy. Yes. Loves that bike. Little horse. And the last but not least, Vinny. The white-furred, devil-may-care, ladies' man, thrill-seeker. Housewife's favourite. <laughs> and you might see why. Blue jeans, you might be noticing a pattern here. Um, but completely topless, other than crossed bandoliers and a backwards red neckerchief. Um, he has a, a kind of half-face facial prosthesis, mm -hmm. uh, metal plate, and he rides a red superbike with guns. So these are the boys, and they crash land in Chicago. Yeah, after being attacked by a Plutarchian ship. Yes, so they are fleeing Mars, and they're attacked by a Plutarchian ship, and they have to bail out, and they crash in Chicago, of course. And they drive away on their bikes. Um, but they land... Where do they land, Alex? Uh, well, it's called Quigley Field in, in the universe, but based on Wrigley Field... In Chicago, the ballpark, baseball ballpark. Uh, they they land on on the as their ship crashes, they land on their bikes, and the people in the in the baseball stadium think that it's a halftime show and <laughs> applaud them as they drive drive off and away. And um, actually, they later end up using the the scoreboard in the ballpark as their hideout. Yeah, because they wouldn't look there for you. <laughs> and we see that Chicago is 
fucked up. Yeah. It, it's actually quite interesting looking back at it. Um, I think it's something that... I, on, it's a major plot point in the show, right? And it's something that I think glossed over me a little bit as a kid. But like, watching back, even before some of the later plot things turn up, like, Chicago's fucked in this. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Craters, abandoned buildings, yeah. um, you know, people living precariously. Um, and it turns out that the Plutarchians are actually here as well. And yeah. they are trying to, you know, plot to extract Earth resources and, and eliminate... Eliminate the city of Chicago. <laughs> Starting with Chicago. <laughs> Got to start in the Midwest. <laughs> and the Plutarchian on Earth, who is spearheading this, is a guy called Lawrence Limburger, mm. who is a fish alien in disguise as a rich oligarch businessman. Um, with, uh, with, with good drip, though. Yeah, an amazing double-breasted purple suit. Yeah. Um, pity he has a, a smell that makes most people gag and eats worms. And, yeah. In fact, you, you, a common theme with the Plutarchians is that they're all named after cheeses. Yes. Um, and we'll meet some of them later. They generally, you know, an episode or an arc of episodes will be Lawrence Limburger has a new plot to somehow take Chicago or destroy the biker mice, um, often with a villain of the week type thing. Summoned through a teleporter. Yes, a um, MacGuffin teleporter. And then the bros will, through their friendship, um, both with each other and their human companion, Charlie Davidson, mm. who's a, a female mechanic, um, they end up defeating Limburger, foiling the plan. They often destroy Limburger Tower at the end of an episode, but yeah. it's always back at the next episode. Yeah. Um, which actually... I think is deliberate, and we'll get into what that says. How about now? <laughs> <laughs> that later on is um, right now. Because, you know, without wanting to go through the entire plot of dozens of episodes of Biker Mice from Mars, mm. um, many of which I have watched in the last few days. <laughs> yeah, we, like unlike Street Sharks, it's worth pointing out that um, Biker Mice from Mars like holds up. Oh yeah, it's a good show. It's, it's a good show. It's not without its flaws, yeah. and we'll get to that, but it's a it's, it's to, for a kid's show. Yeah. Um, so, themes. Like one of the main themes and vibes that's the most obvious is a kind of opposition to corporate uh, hegemony and extractive capitalism. You know, the, the main characters are, you know, inherently rebels and they are fighting against a uh, plutocratic, kleptocratic um, oligarch. Hmm. Plutocratic Plutarchians. Maybe there's something there. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we're giving them too much credit. <laughs> and and it explicitly looks at like the the role of corporate money and power in American society. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a there's a bit where Lawrence Limburger says, "All Chicago soil shall be mine." Then New York, Paris, Hamburg, Detroit. Well, maybe not Detroit. And um, you know, this is. In it. The 90s, I think, was a period where actually people, especially in America, were allowed to analyze and critique and deconstruct capitalism. Mm -hmm. There was a, you know, a, a kind of a brief golden period between the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the War on Terror, where actually maybe you were allowed to ask a question or two. Yeah, I, I think... Um... Ask quite a question or two, but not too deeply, right? Yeah. But I, I do think that's I think that's really important. I think it's something that really distinguishes nineties um, cartoons from cartoons we get today, and something I'll I'll, I'll touch on later. But the, yeah, this idea that in a world of um, what in a world in the nineties, ostensibly things are going okay. You know, you've got um, economic progress. Um, with that that like you said that pre nine eleven era when it, that. I guess in a, in a way, Age of Innocence kind of thing, where the big thing, like like uh, you had shows like Captain Planet, the big thing was everything's going well, but how do we reflect on the way uh, we're exploiting the planet? And often that way was looking at environmentalist things and had that sort of focus of things are going great, but now we need to turn things around and put things back into the world and fix things. Uh, and then immediately after the 
the massive just cultural change of 9-11 and this idea of like the, the, the era of like modern fear I guess mm-hmm. changed the way that cartoons approach things and yeah it, it's it has and I think it's very very explicit in Biker Mice from Mars as well yeah um, and and especially because the 90s was an era when I guess yeah because the Cold War was, was over people had room to think about um, you know the environmental issues and our relationship with our world and this is where, for example, you get some of the growing kind of political power of environmental movements. You get, um, you know, the the ban on CFCs eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In response to the uh, the ozone hole, but this is also, you know, we're talking about a time of economic boom. It's also a time of massive economic inequality, especially in the USA. Yeah. This is when you're getting, you know, the the later stages of a lot of that um, kind of suburban flight from cities, where you had, you know, a lot of richer whiter americans fleeing city centers for the suburbs Mm -hmm. which meant that you had city centers that were a combination of kind of industrial and also you know lower income and marginalized communities so racialized and lgbtq and other you know peripheral and marginalized communities uh, to america this is where a lot of early hip-hop comes from you know um in the message you know, Grandmaster Flash and a Furious Five, they say, you know, broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stairs, you know, they just don't care. And then, you know, that whole thing of this kind of this world that is crumbling around people and people are trying to survive in it. Yeah, that's that's solidification of uh, redlining that happened in, in the US. And yeah, it's it's interesting that even in the even in the show, Lindbergh is destroying Detroit and you have I think that is a really good parallel i don't know if it's an intentional one but i think it is a really good parallel of the idea that although chicago is ruined in the center because of limburger's exploitation at the same time it does have that sort of that echo of the um deprivation of set of the major built-up american cities and interestingly enough even even Detroit is too much for Limburg as well, <laughs> which even, you know, you, uh, in Chicago in, at that time you, was not far off Detroit either, you know. What, I mean, oh, you've seen the Blue Brothers? Yeah, I mean, at one point, like, the murder capital of the US, like, yeah. it's switch, switching places with Detroit, you know, so. I mean, if you look at the, the intro, the opening to, to Blues Brothers, you have that establishing shot of that kind of heavy industry and the, the polluted air and stuff. Mm. And in fact, later in Biker Mice from Mars, there is uh, another Plutarchian who is a kind of a rival to Lawrence Limburger, who is trying to take over Detroit. Yeah, the, that theme of exploitation uh, is something that extends beyond Earth as well, because um, there's kind of this aspect of neo-colonialism as well, in that the Plutarchians are this bureaucratic space empire who don't necessarily conquer they buy there's even a line in the first episode where um charlie asks i think modo you know uh they took over your planet as in mars and he said no they bought it Mm -hmm. this idea of uh external forces buying land that's already owned by people and then eliminating the local population to exploit their place for resources Uh, yeah and your your options for resistance being very limited Mm. and also um in, in terms of the characterization one thing i really like is that Lawrence Limburger's um, two main uh, subordinates, well, hench people, because one of them is literally hench. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have Dr. Carbuncle, who um, is your typical mad scientist. Um, and you have Grease Pit, who is a, a big, muscly, kind of simpleton who is constantly oozing oil. Yeah. Um, it's never really explained why either. No, but you know, like outside of the story, I feel like those are representations of two of capitalism's principal tools through which it exploits. You have you know um, science and technology and access to that mm-hmm. through Carbuncle and uh, Grease Pit. I feel represents industry and you know the the kind of the corporate power of industry because what's also telling is that in one of the early episodes in series 1 Lawrence Limburger steps in as interim mayor um by you know kidnapping the the existing mayor yes and who becomes chief of police yes yeah. grease pit yeah and he's there in aviators and a cop hat um being corporate law being the power of business and money in inverted commas, justice. Yeah. 
I think um, a lot of this is... Uh, you might be listening to this and thinking, wow, that's a lot for a kid's show. Um, and it, it, the it 90s is, was a wild time. The 90s was a wild time. And also, this is the reason why, we're coming back to Biker Master Mars, like... I liked the show when I was a kid, and then when I came back to it, I was like, "Oh, this is this show's got a lot, a lot more <laughs> in it." And also, just as a, a little aside from the actual um, stuff, the the theme stuff, it's actually just just generally well written. Mm-hmm. Like, there's none of that. Like, I mean, there is that cheesy '90s stuff to it, but it's actually there's a lot of funny jokes in it, a lot and of clever asides. The plots are pretty good, and there's just enough kind of Looney Tunes slapstick in there for it to be kind of tension breaking and light. But without it jumping the shark. Yeah, exactly. Jumping the street shark. Jumping the street shark. <laughs> but it's interesting about all these things that we're talking about. Uh, uh, this uh, this railing against the the machine kind of thing. Because the the show, the creator of the show, a guy called uh, Rick uh, Unger or Unger, um, is pretty much as avowed a centrist as you can get. He was um, in around the time he made Biker Mice from Mars in the nineties. He was. Um, often a high executive at a lot of entertainment companies that created cartoons. So he was at one point the CEO of Marvel before Marvel was huge, Marvel Entertainment back in the 90s. Um, and also, uh, I think he was at Deke as well. Um, he's he's now gone on to be a political commentator uh, and editor of uh, a website called The Daily Centrist. So he is <laughs> fully... <laughs> So centrist, he's like fully, yes, I am the editor of the Daily Centrist. I think he has a podcast as well um, about general centrist views on political stuff. So <laughs> I don't know whether this was, when he created this, he was in a more uh, a more sort of, you know, uh, liberal or, or, or socialist phase of his life. Um, or whether it is that sort of... Um, that radicalism from a point of comfort. Yeah, well, you can see there are certain moments, like, there are certain moments where that centrism signs through. Uh, because, you know, for, for a lot of the show, actually, these are anarcho bros. Yeah. Um, they are explicitly rebels and refugees. Um, they are they are people of action. They are revolutionaries. Um, and that's often contrasted with Charlie. Um, you know, that... She often has, you know, things to say about their quote stupid macho guy stuff. Yeah. Um, well, like they'll be off beating someone up and saving the world, and then they'll come back, and she'll be like, and you know, they'll they'll be about to pop open some root beer and hot dogs, and she'll say, no, we we need to clean up the city after this destruction, and then you know that speaks to you know what happens after the revolution. Mm. Um, and for example, when Lawrence Limburger kidnaps the mayor and steps in as, as interim mayor, um, there's a bit of a discussion as to what they should do first. You know, and Charlie's like, "Well, shouldn't you rescue the mayor first? And they're like, "Nah, we're going to kick Lawrence Limburger's ass first. Um, which I thought was pretty based. <laughs> but, uh, this being the show it is, there, there, there are moments where it gets almost to being cool and based, but then bottles it at the last minute. So, for example, um, there's one episode where they confront the the villain of the week and they say, you're destroying property and endangering lives. That makes us mad. (laughs) Now, why property first? Yeah. Yeah. Like, the the main crime there seems to be damaging property. Um, And this, you know, speaks to a, a classic American brain worm. Um, which is not exclusively American, but is, you know, quite prominent and visible in America, which is that the rights of property and the rights of capital come before the rights of people and the lives of people. Mm. Um, yeah, so centrism sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, on the subject of Charlie, it's probably worth unpacking her role in the show as well. Yeah. She is the classic, um, you know, human female companion character in these anthro shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in Street Sharks, there is a female PhD student um, who's a student under Dr. Paradigm who yeah. suspects his motives and tries to help the, the Bolton boys. Um, although she's, after the first three episodes, kind of much reduced in role. Whereas Charlie, Charlie Davidson, is you know, the fourth main character, really. Yeah, often the foil as well to the... Like as you said earlier, to their the 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 three 
uh, biker mice's niece's um, destructive, but also constructive in their destruction mm -hmm. uh, attitudes. And there are episodes where she opts for the subtler approach to solving the problem while they're going around um, driving their bikes up up walls and blasting down wall, uh, blasting down buildings and things like that, and attacking the bad guys. Yeah, the, the the bros do a lot of like smashing through walls on their motorbikes and and you know pulling guns and bombs. Yeah, out of they're places. they're just avowedly not yeah. not subtle. Basically, there well, is in fact in I think in the first or maybe the second episode, there's a part part where um, they say, oh, this requires like some subtlety. And then I think yeah, Throttle says this plan requires some like skill and subtlety, and the motor is like, how about we smash down these doors, like <laughs> yeah. drive up the drive up to Limburger and like kick him in the butt, and then he's like, yeah, it's subtle, subtle, I like it, and then they immediately like, <laughs> go through the door. Um, but Charlie is explicitly shown to be very capable herself, both yep. as a motorbike rider and a you know a physical combatant, um, and a mechanic, yeah. and and a and a really like key ally. Mm -hmm. She's not depicted as a necessarily a damsel in distress although in the first episode she very much is yeah she does get captured a lot she usually she usually either gets herself out or is mostly out of the situation by the time um the the mice arrive yeah but she is also used as a plot device in that way quite a lot yes and the we should probably talk about the the bros uh the bros relationships with charlie mm -hmm. because they have Three separate relationships with Charlie. Um, Throttle, not a huge kind of, not a hugely interesting kind of relationship between Throttle and Charlie. Mm. Um, they're just they're mates. It's a very yeah. I mean, Throttle is the least interesting of the mice anyway. Yeah, it's very. I would say very like collegiate relationship. Yeah, you know, they're they're friends, allies, and you know that kind of yeah. thing. Um, Modo, the the you know the the biggest mouse with the metal arm, he. Yeah, he's a kind of softy, gentle giant. Um, he's very respectful of Charlie, um, and she is quite affectionate towards him. Um, not necessarily in a romantic way, but, mm. you know, um, there is a, a tenderness for the trauma that he and the other mice carry. Yeah, it's more familial yeah. relationship. Yeah, Vinny... <laughs> Vinny is... Like, if Vinny was my bro... Uh, I would call him out on some of his problematic <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, um, he is. He he's very. A lot of his the way that he speaks to Charlie, especially in the early episodes, and it, it, it dies down a little bit. But it's like, kind of nonstop catcalling. It is nonstop catcalling, but in I think it's it's that very like, like like nineties kind of like. Oh, it's you know, it's just a joke, babe. Yeah, yeah. Doll face. Calling a doll face, sweetheart. Also, like his voice kind of sounds like a white Chris Rock. <laughs> he does a bit, yeah. So it's got, it's really got a kind of slightly grating uh, mm. aspect to it, and like, yeah, there's like, for example, there's you know, there's one episode where Charlie infiltrates Limburger Tower disguised as a secretary. Yes. Um, and she is like introduced in the scene, muttering under her breath, oh, "I hate short skirts." Yeah, she spends the entire scene adjusting the yeah. skirt to try and get it over her knees. Um, although the establishing shot is of her ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. But then when she comes out of the building and meets the bros, um, Vinny says something along the lines of, nice outfit, turn around, let me see the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and to her credit, this and this happens throughout the series, Charlie is having none of this shit. She, you know, constantly kind of rebuffs Vinny's somewhat aggressive advances. Mm. Um, and, you know, whenever she does show any uh, reciprocal affection... Um, which she does occasionally because she does have affection for Vinny as well as all the bows. Um, this is shown as kind of disarming and and um, Vinny doesn't really know how to handle that genuine reciprocated affection. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, and he covers it up with bravado. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it's an interesting um, reverse of his character in a way and it kind of shows the... Not in a way that excuses the behaviour, but in a kind of way of... There's a, a a quite adult theme throughout the show of like the 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 fragility the, of masculinity. Yeah, and also the way that the three main characters or the three main ca mice characters uh, deal with the trauma mm -hmm. that they've suffered. Because not only are they re rebels and suffering from losing the home planet, losing people they loved, but they were also experimented on by Doctor Carbuncle before they escaped mm -hmm. and fled. And that's the reason why 
Um, Vinny has his facial prosthesis. Modo lost his arm. Throttle lost his vision um, in these experiments. And so the idea that, that Vinny uses this, his, this bravado as a crutch, and then when it's broken down by Charlie, he suddenly is, doesn't know what to do mm-hmm. because he actually, there's nothing, there's no actual substance behind it. Because he hasn't dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's an, an interesting uh, thing that runs through the, 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 the series itself. And in fact, it, it's interesting to have a show uh, in the night. I mean, I mean, there were shows in the 90s that were very like, you know, people, you had characters in wheelchairs and you had every colour and creed a lot in these mm-hmm. shows. But a show where... Or like the, the Planeteers. Yeah. But a show where each of the, 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 the mice character, the mouse characters, the bros, they all have a disability of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, or they all have prosthesis or you don't really see that very often. And, you know, of, and, and it is, it is not, it's not a, an explicit, like overarching plot point is yeah. that, oh, they are the disabled characters. Yeah. It is, it is a product of the story that they have been through. Yeah, exactly. And they, they deal with, they each deal with the, those things in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even, it's not even revealed until quite late on the throttle has got bionic eyes yeah. and that he's actually blind. Um, which, you know, one blind one blind mouse out of three. <laughs> well, one and a half actually, because Modo has one eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's it, that, that's I think a really interesting aspect of it as well. That it's it's sort of it's part of their character, but it doesn't define them. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I want I want to talk about Modo as well because um, yes, there there's like a there's like a half and half on this one for me because I feel like Modo is uh, the only mouse voiced by an African-American voice actor. Mm-hmm. Dorian Harewood. And is... And he is the tallest, strongest, blackest mouse. Yes. And also has a lot of those... Uh, I, I don't know what the term is, but that, like, positive discriminatory features. He's a gentle giant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's... He's got kind of family values. Family he talks values. about his mum. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't like being called a rat. Yeah, he really hates the term rat. Yeah. Even when used by his bros. Yeah, his catchphrase is, rat, my mama didn't raise no stinking rat. Yes. Um, and actually, there's one episode where they fight a rat. Mm. Um, the tunnel rat. Yeah. Um, and that is a, a showdown for the ages. Also, one thing that that kind of... Once I got thinking about the portrayal of you know an African American coded character mm. uh, in Modo, was that also quite often African American characters are portrayed as like caring about something a lot, or like having an obsessive behaviour. Yeah. So like Modo, you know, is very kind of um, it's very particular about his bike and maintaining it and cleaning it and talking to it and stuff. Um, there is uh, that guy in Predator who can't stop shaving. Um, that, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, you get, for example, Mr. T, who's the big thing about him is he, he's afraid of flying. Yeah, and and it's interesting that, that I don't know that they've this falls into that pattern of oh they they need a an obsessive quirk. Mm, mm. I th- I think the the thing that get, that gets me is this like I this um it's i think it's the most harmless looking but i think it's the most interesting it's just that that trope of the gentle giant mm-hmm. of like big and dumb if, if he's not he's not portrayed as dumb or stupid mm-hmm. but it ties into that you know yes. like oh he's got it meant strength but he's also kind of like soft and and, yeah. and cuddly and it's just like it's a really weird you get it in which, a lot of media for for which i think is part of white america processing the existence of black americans as humans rather than things you can own yeah and the fact that you know um, you should be like, you know, you should be scared of them, but not too scared. Yeah. You know? Like you should be scared enough of them to be racist to them, mm. but not scared enough that they are a real threat. Yeah. Because, because you're still superior. Yeah. But they, yeah. Yeah. And all, but also as well that Modo is on a hair trigger. Yeah. At all times. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Cause like when he, you know, when he flips out, when, for example, someone calls him a rat or if, um, you know, something that he views as particularly egregious has been done or said. Um, his eye glows and he kind of goes into a kind of a a battle rage almost. Yeah. Um, and he punches people with his big metal fist. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting, interesting aspect of 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 the the characters. Um. And like, like you said, even even Throttle, the the the, the most boring of the mice, <laughs> has his own. You know that sort of stoic sort of leader role, yeah. um, but also I think has that sort of 
He's the one who, in the first episode, says comes up with that moniker. There's only three things you can you can trust in the universe: your brains, uh, your bikes, and your bros. Or believe in, I think maybe not trust, but believe in. Mm. Um, and so he's he's very much holding on to. He's the one holding everything together. And I think that's his big thing: is that he's you know he's the leader in terms of like if he wasn't there to not rein them in but keep the gang together, then they would all fall apart in terms of all the crap that's like building in the back of their brains and stuff. Yeah, and I guess you know. If we're talking, going back to talking about how the bros are processing their their trauma, mm. yeah, Vinny by you know masking it with uh, hyper bravado, you have Modo who um, you know kind of suppresses it, but then occasionally his rage bursts out, and Throttle who has this kind of like goal focused stoicism. Mm. Um, which, you know, none of them are really addressing their issues. Yeah. Yeah, they also, I think the the interesting thing is that when, also when they land on Earth, before they even realise the Plutarchians are there, strip mining just Chicago for the time being, um, they also have pretty strong moral codes anyway. When, as soon as they arrive, I think Vinny uh, stops a mugging. Um, the mm. first time they meet Charlie, she's being uh, harassed by Grease Pit, and they step in immediately, um, even though she sort of does most of the work herself, and then they come in and finish off the job. Um, so they, they, they have that moral coding in them. And then there's also, uh, as they go about saving people, there's an interesting phrase that they use yes. all the time. For rebellious rodents. Yes, they say, ride-free citizen. Yeah. Now, ride-free for rebellious, ro- you know, motorcycle-riding rodents, that's pretty dope. Yeah. Citizen. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's like, be it's like yeah ride free but realize you're you're in a system yeah like, be but not, like don't too free not too yeah free. be be free but within the constraints of this system yeah which is the most american thing possible <laughs> yeah. land of the free where you can go to jail for crossing the road at the wrong place <laughs> yeah it's just like yeah that, it comes back to that thing you were saying where it, like it, it becomes it gets so close to and then it just turns it's like oh no yeah, but also yeah. we were too we were too close to being cool yeah. <laughs> but i guess maybe it's like one of those things where if you if you are a kids show in america you've got to set those like va- those american values yeah you, you got to you've got to get past the uh past the the review board. yeah so i think i think we should um compare i mean there's not much of a comparison really there is but there isn't between yeah i mean in my notes i have i think three bullet points for each show (laughs) um so street sharks kind of unclear on economic political theory (laughs) i love that sentence by the way i think that that really summarizes our podcast street Street sharks is unclear on its economic political theory (laughs) um what I what something I forgot to mention actually when we were first discussing street sharks is that actually something that's quite rare is that the both the good guys and the main bad guy are kind of scientists. Yeah. Um. Although you know, apart from the the father um, Bolton, but the, amongst the the boys, a couple of them are kind of engineers. Mm-hmm. Um. And Doctor Paradigm is you know a geneticist and vivisectionist. Yeah. So it's kind of a you know, we love engineering, but we fear biotech. Yeah. Um, and the overriding message is kind of, it is wrong and hubristic to mess with nature by playing with DNA. Mm-hmm. Biker Mice from Mars, on the other hand, um, is like, only really tangentially touches on environmental themes, you know, about the resource extraction and yeah. the, the damage from strip mining and stuff like that. Um, but it's more of an open critique of capitalism with the caveats that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, and it's about the fact that corporate power and greed are going to take everything from us. So we've looked at two examples of the genre of radical teenage anthropomorphic animal cartoons from the nineties. Yeah. We've had the, the lows of the street sharks and the <laughs> highs of Biker Mice from Mars. Now, of course, they weren't the only two shows in that genre. No. No, we also had Battletoads. We yep. also had Extreme Dinosaurs. Um, honorable mention to Gargoyles. Yes, Gargoyles, yeah. Um, great show. Oh, and there was that other show with the turtles. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, what do these shows as a genre 
tell us or what can we force them to tell us for this show <laughs> yeah yeah i i i, th- I think the the uh, a good selling point we had earlier is this idea of um the 90s being a time of you know economic prosperity relative speaking uh and the and creators wanting to have a certain sense of introspection choosing uh issues that were not necessarily um directly related to the economic systems in which they lived but at the same time were concerns that people had in an age before um, the idea of terrorism was the main concern for everyone in the world, the terrorism, the other immigrants, etc. This 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 pre 9-11 era, it was a time when people were grappling with the consequences of economic boom. And yeah, and the collateral on. damage that comes with that. Yeah. Um, you know, we also get Captain Planet from this time. Yeah. Uh, which is you know the most explicitly environmental of of the cartoons then. And I guess also, if you're marketing these cartoons and the associated toy lines at kids who are living in mostly America in this time, yeah, it's the things they see around them. They're going to see urban decay. They're going to see inequality. They're going to be hearing on the news about, you know, environmental degradation and and they're going to see protests. And so I guess it's something kind of relevant and zeitgeisty to to hook them onto. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I've always found interesting about these shows is the kind of the group dynamics. Yeah. So, you know, th- there are various kind of roles and archetypes that you see. And in smaller teams like the biker mice, you know, these will sometimes overlay mm-hmm. um, on each other in, in, in the same character. But in larger teams, like if you had a reptilian martial arts team um, that live in a sewer... Yeah, what a weird, weird concept, right? Um, so you have you know the leader, the bruiser, the clown, the ladies' man, the brains, the glutton, and it's kind of the uh, kind of um, the friendsization of archetype. You know the yeah, of no, no, that's that's bullshit actually because friends came later and also friends is just a show of archetypes it's <laughs> we call it the, like like the term flanderization right yeah of like distilling a character into one trait yeah and which is why i think biker mice from mars is so strong because they have a small team and so they have to layer these archetypes in the same character mm. um, rather than kind of having you know six or seven pure uh, archetypes yeah also most of these shows had a junk food diet yeah, a very specific junk food diet for each um, kind of anthropomorphic animal, which again appeals to a kind of a young American audience. Um, oh, they get to eat hot dogs all the time. So yeah, you had you know uh, hot dogs and root beer was the staple diet of biker mice. Yeah, yeah. Um, burgers as well as steel and concrete and pretty much whatever else for the sharks. <laughs> um, not strictly part of this category, but in the same era and still an anthropomorphic animal, Sonic the Hedgehog famously subsisted on chili dogs and nothing else. Yeah. Um, you could have a team that ate just pizza. Yeah. But obviously it doesn't exist. No. Um, and it's that kind of very 90s Western, like, we can have whatever we want, we can do whatever we want, we can break rules, but within the constraints of a system... Um, and it's kind of daring to examine our relationship with power and, and the world around us. But like you said, in in a limited way. Yeah. I also think there's something along the line. All of the, most of these shows were designed to sell toys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, it sort of reminds me of, the, of that 90s television where, especially in Saturday morning cartoons and the advertising around them were... Toys, 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 fast food, toys, fast food, candy, you know, that, so it sort of ties mm-hmm. in with all that. Like, you know, if you're, if you're anthropomorphic, uh, teenage jacked, uh, heroes happen to like a certain type of fast food, maybe they can be included as toys in a, mm-hmm. in a certain fast food chains, like specials and things like that, you know? Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, that brand could stick some advertising in between episodes. Yeah. I, I think we've stripped mind <laughs> and extracted as much meaning as we really reasonably can at this point but i guess it bears comparing 
and contrasting these 90s cartoons with stuff that we see more recently. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's worth thinking about the, the cartoons we watched as millennials growing up and the world in which we watched them compared to the world in which, if we say children around the age of 8 to like 12, maybe, you know, maybe 6 to 12, are watching these days and how they reflect the world they live in. Like 90s cartoons, as we've, we've, we've uh, talked about, had a lot of, you know, this, you know, uh, brash, colourful, uh, devil-may-care kind of attitude. Um, sometimes had deeper environmental or, or political undertones. But at the end of the day, were about having fun with your, with your bros and, like, you know, exciting action and things like that. Um, while rollerblading or skateboarding <laughs> or some kind of extreme sport. And a lot of the kids' cartoons now um, are very uh, irreverent. And in some in some cases nihilistic, in a kind of like, ha, nothing matters, kind of way. <laughs> like what? Well, you think of things like um, you think of things like Adventure Time, for example, which although you know is watched by a lot of adults, is like designed like a kids' cartoon. Um, and if you know, you have these shows where you have like nice uh, family value shows for younger kids, things like Bluey, which is apparently a very good show has a lot of interesting storylines for a show about a, a dog and his family. Um, and I'm not saying necessarily Peppa Pig is out there questioning the meaning of existence. Comrade Pig! <laughs> They're a pig than a fascist! But but I mean, like you, you look at these shows, things like Gravity Falls as well, um, where plot lines are kind of like, not like lol random, but in just a bit more nonsensical and a bit more uh, off the cuff. Yeah, there is a bit more of a kind of active disconnect from reality um yeah i hadn't thought about it like that before but ne- especially when you mentioned gravity falls which we should definitely do an episode on <laughs> yeah um yeah that there is that kind of the world makes less and less sense um and so the media that reflects it makes less and less sense mm. not necessarily in a bad way for the media um but yeah and they're a lot more fantastical in the terms of, like, you think about specifically the genre we're talking about here with the 90s cartoons of uh, teenage teenagers with attitude uh, who have maybe fantastical elements about themselves in a very real-world setting, mm-hmm. uh, disrupting or in, or uh, interacting with the real-world systems around them, whereas a lot of kids' shows these days are very, very fantastical. And if they are uh, connected to uh, the real world or, 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 you know, modern society, it's usually in the form of, like, urban fantasy or things like that, where it's subverted where there's like a parallel dimension or there's secretly run by demons or uh, you walk, you go in your basement and you fall into a parallel universe where your hat talks or things like that, <laughs> you know, that, 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 which kind of shows that kind of that need for people to disconnect from the real world right now, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, coming to terms with the real world they exist in, in the nineties. Yeah. 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 It's extrospective rather than introspective. Is that a word? Extrospective? It is now. It is now. Yeah. And it kind of makes... I mean, maybe it's not sad, but it kind of... It, like, it, is, it is a little nihilistic that we're, we're in a, we're living as, we're, We live in a society. To quote... To quote, <laughs> to quote, quote the Joker. To quote the Joker. In which, children, in which children's media is very, very like... Don't look at that. Yeah. Don't look at this. Look at this. I mean, nihilism in general, um, I think, is a real theme of the 2020s. Um and maybe late 2010s as well. But, you know, you look at stuff like Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the best films to come out of recent years. And that is all about the struggle between um, the, the, holding on and letting go. Uh, you know, the, the, the essential truth that nothing really inherently matters. But is that a scary hole to fall into or is it an empowering uh truth to realize um yeah our relationship with reality is definitely different than what different from what it was and no one eats junk food <laughs> anymore hmm no he said hiding his delivery history <laughs> <laughs> well we're gonna go and get some root beer and chili and not maybe not chili dogs but some hot dogs anyway um, yeah, bro. 
and then we'll fist bump to some metal music and figure out what we're going to talk about in the next episode. I might watch a couple more episodes of Biker Mike on Mars, though, and I recommend you do, too. Yeah, do watch Biker Mike. If you want to watch Street Sharks, you can, but we did not We did warn you. Yeah. <laughs> we did warn you. What you should watch is the Vin Diesel <laughs> Do that. Do that. And then we'll see you for the next episode of The Lorax. Bye. See ya. Hey Siri, what's the plot of Street Sharks? <laughs> there we go. That's our intro. I've just <laughs> pressed record.